A cup is a cup is a cup. But here's where non-attachment comes in. Somebody who works at a glass factory could say, yeah, but I could melt this down, turn into something else. Boom. That's why I'm not attached. It's a cup right now. I'm not going to try to write with it, but how do I know they can't make it into it and put some ink in it and make it a pen someday? But right now it's a cup and I would be wise to recognize that it's a cup. You know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry has spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Welcome in listening audience. We are so thankful to have everybody listening to us and sharing our content around so that we're just kind of making earth better. Today we have Dr. Christian Conti all the way from the state of Pennsylvania. Hello, sir. How you doing? It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you, man. Uh, And then Mr. Mike Sedini down in Las Vegas. Hello. What's going on, man? I'm excited for today i got my copy i've read this this is an amazing book so i i hear so much about you um we we actually jake draws to this and just your guys's friendship and the things that you know you guys have kicked around and talked about so much um i even made a joke about it yesterday when i was talking to kevin who's our web guy i said if we made a drinking game out of our podcast like there's a couple things that like I do. Like I always go, that's really interesting you say that. Like that's one of those things like everybody take a shot. And then it's the Christian Conti reference to what whatever we're talking to was part of the game. And uh we're actually being sued by a kid who uh who's got alcohol poisoning. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, awesome. No, but no, I'm real I'm really excited about this because I love your work and I from everything I hear about you, uh obviously I, I I hold Jake in such a highlight and just the way he talks about you and, and your work. It, it, I'm excited, man. I'm glad you're here. Appreciate you, man. I'm looking forward to it. I, I, I love Jake. I mean, I think the world of him, he's phenomenal. So it being, and being, and I've, I've heard really great things about you and what you guys are doing together with this. So I'm grateful to be a part of it. Yeah. yeah what, a little, what a little love fest we got going on here. Isn't that's right. It, isn't this nice? <laughs> hey, we need this, man. The world's good and too negative, man. We're it all is. divided yeah. and, you know, they can see some positivity every once in a while. Under. Why don't you introduce yourself to the to the listening audience? Uh, you you are a psychologist and a counselor and a level five angle anger management uh, certificate holder. And there's like I don't know 12, 12 of you in the whole world or some crazy thing. People say uh, people say what is that level anger anger V? What are you level V uh, anger <laughs> level five anger management specialist? The reason why that means something to me is this: there are only three other people that have that. The other three or like 30 years older than I am. I love them. They're awesome people. Um, but it feels good. I felt, I felt like it was an honor to get to that. Um, you know, there it's funny because, and I don't really go into the background and stuff. So I'm not going to go into a bunch of that. I was doing a show the other day and I said, look, I don't, I don't want to go into the background stuff for this reason. It doesn't matter the degrees, the accolades, whatever you've done in life, because if the message that I speak right now doesn't resonate with you, then it doesn't resonate with you. It doesn't doesn't matter what the titles are. So I just always say, you know, sometimes I forget to even introduce myself when I do these 12 hour trainings and I start going and I realize I should at least say something about my background. 
So I guess to introduce yourself to myself, to your audience, it would be this. I specialize in people convicted, working with people convicted of violent crimes. I co-founded a center in South Lake Tahoe, California, specifically for people who were convicted of violent crimes. Um, when I moved back to Pennsylvania back in 2012, I got involved in the state prison system there. Um, we're doing some really powerful work right now, really powerful work there. Um, so I'm involved heavily in the, in the prison system, not just in Pennsylvania, but throughout the country. And uh, I see some really awful things that violence does. Um, but I also see a path through it, a path, a way out, a better path. And so I'm always grateful to be able to have a platform to share that message. Yeah, we'll get into all that because it's really it's really powerful and it's really important, I think, to hear a message of redemption and rehabilitation. I think so often we end up slapping labels on people that we mentally just don't let them get out of, right? Um, and that goes for anything from, you know, convict or felon all the way up to accountant, you know, and and then it's like, well, I'm more, I'm deeper than that, you know, I'm so much more than that. So um, let's start with the book that Mike mentioned, um, to which he didn't reference the title, which is called Walking Through Anger. And it's it's entitled Walking Through Anger because uh, anger plays such a, a role in acting out of that emotion in violent ways. But really, it's about yield theory, which is uh, something you developed some 22, 23 years ago. And I've certainly fallen in love with it and adopted it across uh, many different modalities and interactions that I have and try to teach that as much as I can to my students and interns and fellow therapists. But talk about the, the I guess, the, the origin of the book, um, your theory and uh, its tenets and why it's important, why we, why we should care, right? Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, the title Walking Through Anger is this. Anger is an emotion. So this is a natural, This if you're a human being, I, my tagline is there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who have issues and dead people. And we all have issues and anger is one of them. And we can't avoid it. And just pretending like close our eyes and hey, it's not happening. It's still happening. And so the question is, how do we deal with it? And I think, I think really the basis for that title came from my mom when I was young. My mom is a, uh, she's thin. She's a, you know, tiny person physically, but she is so powerful, like in her energy and her presence. And she was a high school teacher. She taught English uh, to ninth grade students. And she said to me when I was going into high school, she said, I bet there were lots of fights at the school where I grew up. And she said, I better never find out you ever watched a fight. And so I was a skinny kid. Like I'm a big dude now, but I wasn't always a big guy. But I would be like, you know, ninth grader, yet I wasn't allowed to watch a fight. So if fights started, I had to break break it up. And because um, I was more afraid of my mom than the other kids. <laughs> and that was a fact. I don't want to go home and see her and be like, I didn't do anything. Um, but it taught me something from a young age, which was when there was conflict, step toward it, not away from it, do something about it. And then as I went through school, I learned terms like diffusion of responsibility, which occurs whenever, you know, if we something happens to someone and there's a bunch of people around, we have this tendency to go, somebody else will handle it. <laughs> but that's diffusing, that's getting rid of our responsibility. And so if we realize that, it's our responsibility, I believe, to act. And so time and again throughout my life, when I see conflict, I step toward it, not away from it. And that's why, that's kind of the, the basis of that title, walking through anger. We've got to address it. 
you know, I, uh, I, one of my bailiwicks, I don't think it's anybody's any secret anymore that, um, that I do this is I, I teach emotional functioning and, and two people that helped me fall in love with that were you and, um, Chuck Holt, who is another professor from university of Nevada when I was going through my grad program. Um, and I learned this, the, the, the 10 core emotions as studied by a guy named Carol Izzard. And I've done videos on this and lectures and whatnot. And so anger being one of those 10, um, the way that I teach it is anger's purpose. It's adaptive function, if you will, neurologically is to tell us what to do in the environment. And it's often to motivate, but a lot of times we end up getting this, this anger that acts almost like a proxy for other more vulnerable emotions like fear and sadness and shame. And, and we don't want to like necessarily go into those. So we just like clean, we, we grab anger cause it gives the brain something to feel, but it's not the most accurate feeling. Um, but then we don't actually address the underlying emotion. And, and I'm hearing you say like walk toward the conflict, right? Um, and I heard something similar in undergrad from one of my advisors and I was like, that's interesting, like embracing conflict. That's, that's bizarre to me, but it also triggered a fear response. And so I think people are inherently like scared of anger and scared of entering into conflict. What's that about? Definitely. They definitely are. I remember one time I started off, I was a, when I was getting my doctorate, I was a school counselor. I remember this young girl came in to see me, maybe she was ninth, 10th grade and she would smile all the time. And there was so much going on that she was struggling with, but she maintained this smile. And I'll never forget because it was one of the first times I really had this experience in counseling. And I said to her, you know, it really is okay to not smile. And there was a moment of pause and then just a flood of tears. And it was kind of like, I'm supposed to have this persona and I'm afraid to go deeper because what might come of this? And that's what it is. What might come if I express this anger, listen, it is not a far stretch to say that once anger spirals out of control, violence is right around the corner. And so that is a very real concern for people. And so I think people say, well, I know I'll do, I'll just stuff it down. I won't show it. But you and I know from doing therapy so long, when you stuff it down, it just gets it. It's just in there. It's just building up. It's not, you didn't get it rid of it. You didn't sublimate it. You didn't channel it. You didn't release it. So now when you do explode, you are more susceptible to potentially getting to that higher level faster. And I think that's what may, makes people afraid. When yeah, there was an incident recently in Pennsylvania uh, that I want to bring up because it, it really struck a lot of people like right to the core. Um, there were a, a couple who were stumbling show, did uh, uh, snow in their in yeah. their driveway and they moved it over across the street to their neighbors and and they had had issues before they had apparently gone at it before, but then it escalated into this situation where the, the gentleman went inside the house, came back with a firearm and we all know what happened next, right? Yeah. Two people lost their lives. Three actually, if you count, you know, the suicide after, yeah. um, I guess my question is, and, and the average person is going to say, express that anger to what point, right? Um, because you, you don't want to lose your life over snow. Right. Absolutely. But there's a difference between assertiveness and aggression. Right. Assert there is a way to assert yourself. I have done this for my entire career. I work with people who have done the most horrific things. In my center in Tahoe, if you came one minute late to the group, that counted as an absence. And you got three unexcused absences a year. You had 52 weeks you had to attend. On the fourth one, we were calling your PO. You were going to back to prison or jail. And I had to set the boundaries clear. So in other words, if I let you in at 502, Jake comes in next week at 503, goes, well, you let him in at 502 last week. Why can't I come in? And next thing you know, I'm overrun. 
So these boundaries were clear. Here's why I'm telling you this. Because when someone, I've had this happen many times. I'm fortunate to be alive and speaking to you today because there were men who did some really awful things who came a minute late to group and it was their fourth absence. And I walk out and be like, my man, I can see you're upset with yourself for coming late. You know, where this rolls, how this rolls out. And it was in the way that I asserted what needed to be done that I was able to get through it in a way that was productive. But if ha- guys will be like, man, doc, I'm sorry. I disrespected you. I'd be like, you didn't disrespect me. This isn't personal toward me. You coming late has nothing to do with me. This has to do with you. So I don't take it personally. So the, to be able to really enact assertiveness, one of the fundamental tenets of yield theory is non-attachment because if I'm attached to it, well, if you disagree with what I'm saying, then I'm furious. I get pissed quickly. But if I'm not attached to it, I go over and I say, listen, you all are shoveling the snow into my driveway. That's kind of, listen, I'm going to be honest with you. That's kind of messed up because now I have to double shovel. I, I don't understand how you think that's okay. And now I have a conversation with them because it's setting a precedent going, you shouldn't do that. I can't believe. No, listen, maybe you're not aware of it. Like, this is a really cool secret. What I just shared right there is a cool secret on how to diffuse a situation. Give someone an out. But see, our ego doesn't want to give them an out. Our ego doesn't want to say, yeah, there's a possibility. I, but I would say that couple, I, you guys probably didn't, you weren't even aware of this, but as you're shoveling this here, that kind of doubles the work I have to do. And so I would really appreciate you not doing that. Now, if I say you're not aware of it, they go, oh, I'm sorry, even though they might've been, but now you called them on it but you did it in a way that gave them an out. So they go, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize it. Okay, boom, we get through that situation. But my guess is without knowing anything about that situation, other than reading a quick thing about it in the news, is it was ego versus ego. You did this, you did this, screw this. And it escalates so quickly. We hear that word a lot, ego. Excuse me. And um, uh, you and I understand from the the Carl Jung, uh, you know, psychodynamic, circle uh you know as it relates to awareness and that kind of thing and i'm throwing out a lot of you know counseling words here but explain what ego is and what i think pop culture thinks it is yeah i mean i just say it this way ego is who you think you are essence is who you actually are so ego is who you oh i'm i'm a you know i'm a professor well if you lose your job as a professor does that make you less of a human being You know, no, it just means you had that. So if you identify as something, that's who you think you are. That's not who you actually are. And when we keep breaking that down, we realize we come to a word that we use called essence, which is the core of who we are. But ego is a problem because what happens is if you disrespect my image of who I think I am, I take it personally. Ego is so fragile. It's so fragile. And so if you disrespect who I think I am, I get really offended because I think you're tearing me apart. But if I realize that I'm not my ego, then you you knock at my ego. I go, okay, yeah, I can see that. Honestly, Jake, listen, this comes down to this. I've been saying this a lot lately. I see people all over the world say, well, as long as I'm alive, I still have more to learn. And I think that's, for most people, that's BS. They don't really believe that. This is lip service. Because if you really believe you have more to learn, then when someone disagrees with you, you go, wow, you must be seeing something I'm not seeing. Teach me. I would love to, I would love to learn. And this is a very powerful thing. I really buy into that. So I really do lead with that. If you guys read my book and you go, ah, that's a bunch of crap. I go, okay, maybe you're seeing something I'm not seeing. Teach me. Let me learn. 
Right. What is what is this with people who have practiced something for a really long time, like a career or like just a pattern of behavior, and they conflate who they are with what they do insofar as like, I mean, you and I've had experiences where people are like, I'm just fill in the blank. I'm just angry. I've always been this way. I'll never change. It's like you came out of the womb that way. That doesn't really make much sense. How, how do you how do you work to massage somebody into seeing that the fullness of who they are out outside of their practice habits? Well, you know, I know you do this too. We, we use words like um, kind of, I would say soft words to help lead somebody into it. Like, no, I, I think you're more than that. I, I'd say you're more than that. I know you see yourself as that and that's really powerful, but I, you know, I kind of see you as more than that because a little bit, a little bit like that. Now the person goes, well, yeah, I am more than that. Okay. Boom. Now we already got there. Like, it's really funny when we go to somebody who's highly resistant and I've spent my career on highly resistant people, but I go in, like I, I was going in a couple of weeks ago um, in this maximum security prison in a restricted housing unit. These guys are struggling in an intense way. And the group leader said, oh, they're not going to listen to you. They don't listen to anything. They never, they're never quiet. They never, okay. So I walked in and I, um, I said, uh, what's up gentlemen? I questioned this and that. No, what's, what's this going to be? I said, I don't know. It might be a bunch of BS. I don't know. Every word I might say might be a bunch of crap. I don't know. Listen to me. Don't listen to me, whatever you want to do. And now it was like, wait a minute, you're telling me not to listen to you. Now I'm going to listen to you. And so uh, if they challenge something great, challenge it. I don't know. Tell me what you think about that. And now it's, it sets up leading with humility changes things. And I don't just give lip service. I really do believe this. It's a, I'm a practicing Zen Buddhist. One of the things that we practice is constantly challenging our own egos. And that means I take feedback. I take direct, like if you give me feedback, it might be like, like I do a YouTube channel. You might get people say, oh, thank you, blah, blah, blah. Then you might get somebody say, I hate you. I hate your bald head. Okay, cool. <laughs> thanks, for your, thanks for taking time to watch the video. You know, I appreciate it. But if we're like, no, you can't criticize me. That's what takes practice. But you do this too. And I know this. So you know what it takes. It's constant practice. You have to stay up on it. I, I have a quick question because I, um, I, I think I, I love the way you approach things in the book and, and, and I would, be shocked if anybody re actually read the book and said like, that's a bunch of crap. Right. But I wonder how does that play in? Cause like, I'll give you an example. I was watching a documentary about crack on Netflix. Right. And it was like crack in the eighties. And there was a scene. And I thought about this a lot because the guy said, when you're in the streets and you're, and you're selling this crack, <laughs> he said, uh, you can't show any weakness. And he literally goes down to this, like, you know, he has this whole monologue and he, and he says, when people make a joke that you think is the funniest joke on the planet, you can't even smile. Like that's the hard persona because if they see you smile, then they know you're weak and, and you obviously are around some of these, you know, I'm sure in the prison system, there's this, this attitude of, Hey, if I, if I do yield or I do try to meet people where they're at, I could get killed. Yeah. You know what? I definitely, and I run into those guys. I definitely run into those guys. Um, however, like, I'll end up getting them to smile. And the reason why is this. So there were these wolves in Yellowstone and they were really studying this one wolf. And this wolf was like the baddest wolf ever. He didn't lose a fight. They, they dubbed him the super wolf because he didn't lose a fight. But when the biologists studied them, they noticed something profound. Like not only does this wolf, would he give his belly to his own cubs to act like they were winning, which if you've ever had a tougher dog, you know, they don't tend to give you their bellies much. 
And yet here is this super wolf in Yellowstone, in nature, giving his belly to his, his own cubs to make them feel like they were winning. But what they saw next blew their minds. Not only did he, give, did he give his belly to his own cubs, he gave his belly to neighboring cubs that weren't his. They had never seen this before. So they dubbed him a true alpha. And a true alpha has nothing left to prove. So when you lead with a story like that in a maximum security prison, and I'm like setting you up to understand, a true alpha has nothing left to prove. If they want to freaking laugh, they'll laugh. If they, if they, Listen, if a true alpha hears me say something funny today, they're probably going to crack up laughing. If somebody's insecure, they're probably going to be all tightly wound. That's cool. Be wherever you are. Guess what? I just set up the audience to better start laughing at my jokes because <laughs> if you don't laugh, you're going to be like, oh, no, am I insecure? <laughs> and uh, but I call it out. And then I, then, I, then I do this. When it comes to humor, humor is wonderful if it's self-deprecating. The part where people mess up is they say, well, you just need to lighten up. I can make fun of you. You lighten up. No, that's, that's BS. You're making fun of somebody. I don't do that. I, I laugh at my own self. And then I lead by example to be like, yeah, I'm, I make stupid mistakes constantly. And when you do that, you kind of set that tone. Listen, I've had some of who were in those situations who would say like I remember one guy was telling a story in group one time he said man I watched the dude's head get cut off at lunch he said everybody scrambled I sat there and finished eating my lunch and he made sure he told the story off stoic and I'm like my man like that 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 had to spoil your lunch and he wanted to make sure he didn't it didn't spoil my lunch I just kept eating okay um and then I remember talking to him afterward like you've gone through a lot and I remember when there was no one else around for him I made sure no one was around because if you, there's an analogy in counseling. Like if somebody has a three-legged stool and you take away one of the legs, you better replace it with something else. So if you understand the male persona, you, especially in prisons and you just take away and have someone else feel vulnerable and you don't replace that, that's messed up because you could get them hurt later on when you're not there. So I'm very mindful of this. So if, for this particular guy, I remember pulling him aside later and saying, um, man, you've been going through so much. Like you've gone through so much. Like, you know, there were a couple of guys that were laughing in the back when you were telling that story. They weren't laughing at you. They were laughing like, you're so stoic. Like, damn, dude, you're stoic. And he looked at me and then he smiled. And I said, I know you got this in you. You just have been hurt so long that you have to stay tough. I get that. I just want you to know when you're around me, like you're good, like whatever emotions you want to show, you show. Because to me, you're already so ridiculously tough. Literally, there's nothing you could do to not be tough around me. And I, I talk to inmates, like I, I say this a lot to inmates because that does feed the ego, but I'm not just fluff. Like a lot of men are really strong or really powerful and really physically tough. But we all know that toughness isn't just physical. Because I, I I'm doing this. I'm doing this intro video. This is really, really exciting. I wanted to share this with you guys. In the state of Pennsylvania, COVID, we've we've worked our butts off around this COVID stuff, and it's made us adapt. But one of the things that has been adapted is this: because people are spending more time in their cells, because you have limited number of cohorts so many people, there's only so much time out. So a lot more people are spending more time in their cell. To me, I said, we need to make sure people have things to work on. And I'm very passionate about body, mind, and spirit. We got to work on all phases all the time. We got to train. If we want to be like mental samurai warriors, we have to train. So we have in the state of Pennsylvania now, every inmate who comes into a state prison 
goes through my program. Their first three weeks, they're going into a personal growth program and they are learning about themselves from day one. And so I'm filming this video that's going to come be kind of like the, the introductory video. Like you come in, that's what you get. And I interviewed an inmate and normally an inmate's not allowed to be on a camera because the office of victim advocates, like if it's shown outside a prison system, but this is only going to be shown in the prison system. So I got permission to get him on camera and he started telling this story and I'm just putting it together to edit it, to get this video done. But he was telling a story about how he learned on his first day of prison, 38 years prior, that there are, there's no such thing as tough in a prison. And he told a story about a guy who could have been the heavyweight champion of the world back when they had boxing in prisons and like was destroying people left and right. But he had a habit of doing awful things to people and it caught up with him. And this really tiny guy who he had abused grabbed a weight. And when he wasn't looking, smashed his head in. So he still lived, but his whole life was totally different after that. And he told that story to say, there are no tough guys in prison. So if you think you're going to walk around with your chest puffed up and acting tough, people a see right through that. And you can only beat so many people up at a time and they'll jump you with enough people that you'll never. So the point is this, it's not about just being physically tough. That's not what life's about. Like I say, I'm saying too much right now. I'm on a roll, but I want to finish this, this and, I'll, and I'll, I'll pause. But I say this to men all the time. Like when you come in acting tough, like everyone sees through that. The tougher you act, the more insecure you are. And that's it's just common knowledge now. Maybe it wasn't when we were young, but it's common knowledge now. So what do you want to do? Focus on acting tough or focus on learning about yourself so that you could take a different path. How do we that, balance? Yeah, no, I was really good. And don't ever apologize for <laughs> going on a soapbox or a rant. Um, but how, how do you help people embrace the idea that physical toughness is, um, I guess, how am I going to say this? Physical toughness is not all it's at, all where it's at. And mental toughness or mental flexibility even is probably a better way of saying it, um, begets better results when they don't have a history to believe that they can't, they can't see that, okay, I can, I can drop my physical guard and be working on myself. Cause they're, you know, they perceive danger lurking in all areas. Like I'll get, I'm, I'm going to get killed if I, if I drop this, how, how do you, how do you help people? And not just in prisons, but you know, elsewhere too. I think we all go through this and, you know, leadership and business and sports and politics and all sorts of things. I think that's that's such a great question. I do work with some professional basketball teams and I was doing work with the team. One of the uh, the guys came up to me and he said, we kind of need this ego because that's part of what we get like uh, on the court that kind of helps us out on the court. And he said, but I agree with what you're saying about setting that ego aside, but we kind of need it. And I said to him, what I think resonates with this answer with what you're asking, and it's about balance. It's about balance. It's understanding that I said body, mind, and spirit. It's great to work on yourself and be tough, but you don't need to assert, like, you don't need to, like, it's almost like if you can visualize, I'm, it, this is funny. I'm going to go from all the other stuff I'm talking about to quoting Dirty Dancing. So in Dirty, in dirty Dancing, they're like, this is my dance space. That's your dance space. Okay, this is my space, and I'm okay to protect that space. But one inch outside of that, and I'm outside my realm. I don't, there was a guy in my group one time in prison. He goes, you can't say not to be act, uh, not to act tough because then somebody disrespects you. 
then they're just going to keep taking over and then you're, you're going to be, you know, they're going to own you. And I said, no, listen, I'm not saying that you can't defend yourself if someone comes at you. What I'm saying is this, your line of disrespect and mine are vastly different. Your line of disrespect is someone looks at you wrong. Mine is if you're physically going to attack me. That is a big difference between that. And I said, because you've set your boundary so far out there, there's no way. There's too much. There's too little space. And your boundaries are too big. There's no way people aren't going to cross it. There's no way. And he's like, yeah, I guess I can see that. I'm like, you're disrespected by everything. So it's about a balance. I mean, I think if people can start to get comfortable with themselves, and here's the way I lead in with it. It's your self-talk. What do you say to yourself when someone looks at you wrong? What do you say to yourself if you're a leader in that business meeting? What do you say to yourself when someone disagrees with your perspective? I can't believe they're disrespectful. I can't believe they don't believe me. I can't believe they would say that. Or do you say, okay, this person just shared their side of the box. They just shared their perspective. That's cool. Like maybe their perspective is more insightful than mine. Great. Thanks for teaching it to me. Talk, talk about the box. So the box is a concept that is um, the, it originated from this. When our daughter was five years old, she came home from uh, like kindergarten. She had this little pamphlet. Someone handed her in religion and it said, this is the truth. But it was a different religious belief than our own. So she was confused. And she said, but daddy, it says this is the truth. So I took her up to her playroom and I put a big box in front of her. And I made her lie down on her stomach and close her eyes. And then I put four different objects around the box. And I had her really close so she could only see one side of the box. So I had her open her eyes and I said, what do you see? And there was a little pony character, my little pony character. Okay, my little pony. Okay, cool. Is it true there's a my little pony in front of you? Yes, that's truth, right? Yes, that's truth. I said, is it true there's a my little pony around every side of the box? Now she's only five years old. So she was like, yes. So I scooted her on her stomach over so she could only see two sides of the box now. And on the second side, I had a little book set up. She was like, oh, it's a book. I said, that's okay. Is it still true that there's a pony on that other side? Yes, that's true, right? So I said to her, do you think it's true now that there's a pony in a book on the other two sides? Five years old, my little girl looked at me. She said, now, daddy, I don't know. I gave her a high five. I said, listen, that's it. You don't know. But the people who wrote that pamphlet and follow that way what they see might very well be truth to them, but that doesn't mean they see the whole side of the box, all sides of the box. And this is a very powerful story. I quoted to her the opening lines of the Tao Te Ching, by, that, by, by the way. The opening lines of the Tao Te Ching are, the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. Which, by the way, to this day and age, uh, my daughter's 15, and she way out quotes the Tao to me because she memorizes a chapter a month, and she's done it for like two and a half years, so she could spit out more chapters than I can now. Uh, it's pretty cool when your child's 15 and they've already gone past you. Um, but the box is powerful because of this. I say this. Imagine, I hear, I, I've spoken about this, and I've, I've had people come up to me and say, I've already been around the whole box, so I already know. So I said, no, listen, the box, imagine that there's a different picture showing up on each side of the box every second or at random times. So if you leave your side and go see that side, now this other side has new pictures up. The only way you can ever understand what's on another side of the box from you, other than one or two sides, is to ask someone else and then listen with humility. 
because you don't know. You haven't been on, if you've been on this side, then you're missing this side. We're not omnipresent. And so it's important to understand Now, this concept is so powerful because that means when someone disagrees with me, I go, cool, that's your side of the box. I've set up at the PA Department of Corrections. We have meetings every week where we have 24 state prisons, all their leadership team and us at central office, we get together and, and we have these meetings. And what I've kind of steered everyone toward is this. And it's, it's phenomenal to see. There's so much less emotion. If you have a perspective, if you don't have to be angry about it, you don't have to be like, well, I think we should do that. You go, this is what I'm seeing. Cool. And I lead by example. I'll be like, well, listen, my side of the box, here's what I'm seeing. Um, could be something totally different on the other side of the box that is more pressing. But this is what I see at this moment. And it's so fun. It's kind of cool to hear people use that language now. They'll be like, well, then my side of the box is this. Cool. I'm not saying that it's wrong or bad. That's just my side. That's all I see. And again, all of this ties together. Because Jake, you know this. Living this life, it's not, I write some cool thoughts down. Like I live this life. I meditate every day. I wake up. I visualize standing in front of the world. How can I impact the world? I've been doing this for more than a decade where I say this particular lifestyle. And I constantly question that ego. So as passionate as I am about yield theory and everything else, I'm open that there could be another side. I, I believe profoundly in my own spiritual beliefs, but I'm 100% open. They could be, someone could come along and say, these are wrong. I just believe in a divine being that'll be like, hey, listen, you, you were human. You messed up. No, no biggie <laughs> at the end. There's a, I think there's a lot of people who I would just guess that listen to the show and who also... Um, act in their own ways that if they ever listen to this show, they'll hear this and they'll have the same reaction I did back in 2007, 2008, whenever I first um, started talking to you and taking classes from you, that they get great anxiety because it moves toward a position of um, almost paralysis because it invites the possibility that you can't ever make a decision or advance a policy um, with insistence, right? Like, no, we really need to do this because you know the the evidence is overwhelming. Or you know, pick pick your reason. Um, how do we move from man? I can't ever possibly know everything. To hey, we have to act. I love that. That's so insightful. So that's I get that. And I've been really emphasizing that just because you're not attached doesn't mean you don't have a really strong, powerful, insightful perspective. I, we are blessed in the state of Pennsylvania with, I think, one of the greatest leaders of our time in Secretary John Wetzel. He is phenomenal. And I'll give you an example of this. So I went to him and I said at the beginning of COVID, and I was in one particular prison at the time, and I said, I, I fly a lot to speak. I speak all over the country, but I don't really enjoy flying. I just don't enjoy it. And sometimes I just wish the pilot would come on and be like, listen, it's just turbulence, no biggie. And I'd be like, cool. All right, I'm better. The person who's in control just told me it's cool. Thank you. So I said, when it comes to these our institutions, we're doing more lockdowns. We're so much chaos around this information. What's happening? Let's jump on and do fireside chats. And I said, my perspective is, and I could be missing something. So I brought it to the table. And this is exactly how I said it. Jake, with everything in my being, I was like, I really believe this is the right thing to do. So I said, listen, from my perspective, my side of the box, I really would love to see this be mandatory and have every state prison do a fireside chat every week. 
And I said, I could be missing something and I'm open to that. I'm just letting you know from my perspective, this is what I see. Secretary Wetzel stepped back for like, it's mandatory. From now on, everybody does a fireside. Like it was like, he stepped back and listened. He was like, boom, we're doing it. And we've been doing it to this. And that's almost like a year now, what, 10, 11 months where we do it every, and it's so cool how it's evolved. I go to prisons for like consultation now and I always jump on and do them when I get there, but it's cool to see how they've run with it. But that was an example of, I felt very passionate about it. And I was like, I'm open. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe there is something that I'm missing. And that's the part I say, like I speak, Mark Twain said, speak with conviction, but be open that you could be wrong. And I really love that statement. I really love that. I, I speak with conviction. This is what I believe in this moment. And hey, listen, if something else, and people say, well, that's wishwashy. Not at all. Have you ever had martial arts? Hey, Bruce Lee, just do these specific moves. And if someone hits you the wrong way, ah, if you already planned out your moves, don't change it. You didn't expect this block, so don't use it. No, you use whatever happens in the moment. That's how I am with life. It's like a martial art. I'm going to approach it. This is my plan, but I'm open that something could come along and go, okay, cool. I didn't see that. Now I do. Let me adjust. I think that's missing a lot in our conversations broadly. Mike? Yeah, I have a uh, – so in the firearms community – um, we, we struggle a lot with, and I, I don't know, I'm going to go to like mass shootings or, you know, take, for example, the shooting that we brought up earlier. And it's, it's so easy for us to say like, oh, it's a mental health issue. Right. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I started walk talk America, because I was like, I'm tired of passing the ball. Like, even when I thought I could pass the ball and say like, Hey, can we help financially? You know, that didn't work. So we had, we, we had to look for different solutions. But um, one of the things that always confuses it, uh, a lot of gun owners or people in the industry is they say, um, how, how can that not be mental health when somebody does something stupid or violent, right? Um, and I had all these people on the mental health side saying it's, it's not mental illness. You can't blame mental illness. You can't just default to mental illness. And it took me a while to understand that because they were like anger management, right? Impulse control. These are things that aren't necessarily deemed like mental illnesses. Um, how do you guys feel about that? I guess it's for both of you. You know, how, how do you dissect that? Because Jake, you, you know, the more we were at this and the, and the more places we go inside the 2A community, people are going to ask you like, how is that not mental health? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll take from my side. Um, so a lot of people probably still don't understand our whole profession probably doesn't understand what it does, but from a, uh, from an agency owner perspective, from a supervisor business guy, who, um, who does this practically, we're still under the medical umbrella model and the medical medical model says in order to receive care, you have to point at what's broken and then we'll move forward with a plan to fix it. And sadly, um, in mental health, as far as I'm, as far as I know, we're still the only branch of the medical field that requires a diagnosis before treatment can commence. So you don't get that with dentistry or pediatrics or, uh, optometry or primary care, um, where you can go in a couple times a year, pop the hood, check the belts and hoses and be on your way. It's a preventative care, right? We, we don't have preventative care where we can get reimbursed by insurance yet in behavioral health. So therefore we have to diagnose somebody and the diagnostic criteria have to be met, um, before we can send the claim onto insurance where we can get reimbursed for our services. And I think that's where a lot of the confusion breaks off is that 
culturally across society, we have this belief that you're not mentally ill unless you have a diagnosis. Oh, okay. But that means, that means you had to have access treatment somewhere and treatment access is not available everywhere, especially in Nevada, where we're provider deficient and leading the nation in the worst uh, provision (laughs) across the country. So um, when people do um, heinous things, we, we can only do a postmortem investigation on it and go, well, there were some signs and symptoms and, you know, they didn't get care. And so therefore we can't call it mental illness because it's not documented somewhere. So that's one problem that I see. Um, but I love that you brought up impulse control because remember the criteria that I mentioned, you have to meet criteria to get a diagnosis in the first place. And criteria are supposed to be hard to meet. There's time limitations. There's numbers of things that you have to have observed or described or been reported. And, um, impulse is not, is not one of those. I mean, I can have a, I talk about this all the time in my emotional functioning stuff where I have impulses of excitement where I, if I give over to them, I embarrass myself. And one of the examples I frequently use is standing in a grocery store at, on the paper goods aisle. And all I want to do is take off sprinting down the aisle with my arm stuck out, knocking off all the paper towels. Cause I think it'd be fun. <laughs> that's, that's an excitement impulse. And if I don't know my body well enough to override that, and I don't foresee the future well enough to override that, you know, it's like, well, I can consider the outcomes of embarrassing my wife and my kids and possibly getting, you know, looked at weird by the manager. <laughs> like then, then I'm, I might give over to it. And so anger impulses are, are really important too where if we aren't aware of what's going on in our body and our brains, we can give over to those. And that impulse is not enough to beget a mental illness diagnosis. So to their point, they're, they're right. It, it may not be, but it may be. And who gives a rip is kind of where I'm going with that. But I want to hear Christian's perspective because I know you've got one too. Yeah, no, but you, I love what you said. I, I, I think that's so you set the stage and this just makes me so proud to hear because the first thing you noticed, Mike, he said was about the context. We have to look at the context. So we are such an either or society. It's either mental illness, not mental illness. There's a both and philosophy that says, yeah, think about it on a continuum. I told you at the onset, my tagline, two kinds of people, people with issues, dead people. It's funny, but it's also true. Like we all have issues. We're all on that continuum somewhere. This is why psychology students, when they first starting study psychology, they read it and they go, they think they have everything that they read because we do. If you've ever had, you know, you drink too much caffeine, you're like, wait, did I just see something out of the corner of my eye? Wait, did I just have a hallucination? Um, and so am I now uh, suffering with schizophrenia? Listen, it's all on a continuum. So the problem is in trying to make everything either or. We want to point blame at people for things. It's a very, if you think about individual development, we go through stages. When you're in this concrete operational stage as a child, you only see things in terms of black and white. You don't understand the gray because your brain literally hasn't developed to the point where your frontal cortex is prepared to understand the gray. Now, as a society, we're not too far off from that stage because it's either this or that. Wait a minute. How about there's a lot of aspects that contribute to it. And the first thing that happens that when I speak publicly about this, I'll have somebody say, so are you saying like, for instance, in a relationship that someone's playing a role in someone being violent toward them? I say we all contribute to every interaction that we have. Hear that statement. And let me just throw this out real quickly for anybody listening with their beautiful skeptical ears on. 
understand this. It's easy to sit and listen and say, um, oh, just look for what you're looking for. But step back and really listen. I say this thing about shower arguments. If you've ever had an argument in the shower where you're arguing with somebody in your head and like by the end of the shower, you're like, man, I got them. I got them. Then you get out of the shower and you're like, oh, crap, I'm in the bathroom by myself. You weren't actually arguing with anybody. You were arguing with yourself. It's like playing chess with yourself. Of course, you're going to win, but you're also going to lose. And so, and so if you have a shower argument about what I say, please do this. Disagree with every word I say, but disagree with what I say, not with what you think I'm going to say. And here's what I'm saying. We all play a role in every interaction that we have. We don't cause people to be violent toward us ever. However, we do play a role. And the reason why that's important for me to get out there is it is disempowering to tell a human being, you play no role. You're nothing but a puppet. No, you have a role. And if you learn about that role, you can help empower yourself to move through whatever you're going through. Nothing close to blame the victim. It has to say with empowering people who have been victimized to say you do play a role. Now, when it comes to violence, no one makes anybody be violent toward them any way, shape or form ever. I don't believe that. But I do believe that we all contribute to situations. And when it looks, when we look at the uh, the mental health, is it, are they mental health? Are they not? Yeah, there are things that are going on. Who in their right mind takes out a gun and shoots somebody? Who's in a psychologically stable position and says, I'm going to shoot somebody? So by that definition, anytime something comes up, but I also understand the other side of the box, which is don't just dump it and say everybody's mental health and like there's no issue with it. Yeah, it all contributes to it. And when we approach a conversation recognizing that there are parts that each part plays, now we get somewhere. But let me just add this little caveat. We have a tendency to do the point scoring thing. So it's like, okay, I'll admit I play a role if you admit you play a role. No, no, just own your own piece. Yeah, of course I play a role. And listen, I encounter this all the time. I I was in a prison. I I don't want to just talk about prison stuff because I do stuff way outside prisons. It's just on my mind right now. And I was talking to this guy recently in prison. He goes, I said, everyone's we're all hypocritical we all do hypocritical things and he couldn't get off that so you're a hypocrite so you're of course absolutely definitely do hypocritical things for sure see you're a hypocrite so i can't listen to you because there's nothing you can tell me okay cool then don't listen to me that's cool like be where you are if that's where you are you are i think it's a natural inclination for human beings to do hypocritical things we downplay our hypocrisy oh yes i do but and now we excuse it what if we just own it? Like, yeah, I do some hypocritical things. I'm working on it, so I'm going to eliminate that. But that's important to realize. Just own your role. Does mental health play a role? Absolutely, it plays a role. Absolutely, it plays a role. What do you think about this concept of, because uh, we do suicide prevention primarily, and then it, all this other stuff merves out from it. Um, and we've heard lately this uh, – Gun violence is anything, anytime a gun is used because it's a violent instrument. And I have a, a problem with self-violence as it relates to suicide because um, that kind of gets folded into the mix. It's like, well, it's all gun violence. If you, if you take your own life with a firearm, if you take your own life with, a, with any, any method, you're, you're committing violence against yourself. Um, what, how does that resonate with you or how do you interpret that? I mean, I think it's, it's a lot of things can be used to describe whatever you want to describe. So, I mean, we tend to describe violence as an act towards someone else, someone or something else, as that's what violence is. Um, 
I mean, if you want to listen, I, I, I was working, I was talking to a lobbyist and she said, you know what? I'm really great at manipulating statistics. She goes, she laughed it off. She goes, that's my job is to manipulate statistics. So if she wanted to argue um, for this point, she would say, if she wanted to argue the one side, she'd say, well, well I want to increase the violence. I'm just going to throw that in there and say that that's a part of it. And if I don't, then I'll take that out and I'll just focus on something else. So it really is how we approach it. And the problem is we live in a world that wants a Twitter soundbite, that wants a quick, so you're either this or that, tell me where you are. That's not reality. Like I, I refuse to be cornered into, am I either this or that? If that's what you need to see me as, you go ahead about your day because it doesn't matter to me because you don't change who I am. And I'm much more than your either or. What I'm hearing is that it could be and it could not be. <laughs> yeah, that's the both and. That's right. why I say it's both and. Yeah. It can both it can contribute it can contribute to it, it cannot contribute to it. I guess I ask because I wrestle with it and I, I truly don't know because I can see I can see many sides to it. Um and I wonder, you know, going back to what I've since adopted as my favorite word in counseling, thanks to you, which is intentionality, which is the spirit through which we act with purpose. Um, I wonder about the intentionality uh, when people say things like that, and and I love your reference to the to the lobbyist. You know, it's almost like if people have a message they really want to get across, they're going to craft words the way that they need them to be heard, which I guess is what we all do, and that's and that's fine. Um, maybe it's maybe it's just that I haven't resolved to rest in the dialectic. Dialectic is is the both end, whereas binary is either or, um, and, I, and it's just some work I need to do to 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 settle into some, some interpretation of it. And uh, maybe I don't need one either. Um, I'd love to move toward the idea of um, the origin of violence and, and the lack of tolerating our anger or our emotional functioning. Um, you've, uh, this is a podcast. It's great. Um, I've got another one called Noggin Notes. We talk about mental health stuff. You've been on that. You had a couple podcasts of your own. Um, one was uh, about, it was what, 60 seconds at a time is the emotional I still management. Do that one. You do still that's really? on Sirius XM now. Oh man. How many yeah, that's episodes? On, that's on like 500 stations and it's on Sirius XM on uh, like uh, the old time radio on Sirius XM. That's awesome. I, and, and I think, do you still have it on your website too? Can people get I it there? I haven't looked at my website in a while, but oh. I maybe mean, I shouldn't say that. Part. I don't know. I, I think I have a beautiful management <laughs> team. Ago, you know, that was like, I, I should have. <laughs> <laughs> I have an awesome management team, and they take care of that website. So, uh, yeah. I, I just post something. I just send it to them, and they post it. Yeah, so uh, this is all to ask you this. So you you do this emotional management minute, and it's great. It's like it's like a PSA, basically. It's 60 seconds, and there's a, yeah. usually a story involved, and it's very, very good. Um, but regarding emotional management and, and tolerating emotions, which you and I teach is temporary. They're all temporary. They're fleeting. There's a beginning, a middle and an end to every emotional experience. Um, I'm curious your take on what I think is an overall lack of distress tolerance in our society. And, and that goes to the Twitter soundbite and that's what like peaked it in my, in my head. Um, the inability or perceived inability, I guess, of people broadly to digest nuance and really spend time and be uncomfortable receiving new information and allowing themselves to change their mind and dissolving their egos. It, am I off on that? Are we are we losing the ability to tolerate distress? And is that what's leading us to these violent impulses? 
I don't know that we're losing the ability. I'm not sure that we ever had it. I think that Twitter is an outlet for it. Fair enough. Like Twitter is an outlet. It could be also called id because it's like your id. Like you just, whatever you want to say, you just spit it out there without really thinking. Um, you know, and again, each individual is responsible for that because I use my, I, I'm on Twitter. I literally tw- tweet every single day at the big morning. I wake up picture I'm standing in front of 7 billion people and say, what would I say to the world today? So it can be used any way you want to use it. But yeah, you're right on the distress tolerance. Like, how dare you disagree with me? How dare you have a different opinion from me? Um, That is distress tolerance to be able to say, listen, you have a totally different thought about this issue than I do. And it's okay. Like, you're seeing something different than I'm seeing. I don't have to accept what you're seeing. I don't have to say, well, now I'm going to change my opinion. And I also don't have to hold on to my opinion. I can really see what resonates with me and what doesn't. Now, this takes, as you well know, discipline. It takes effort. It takes anything takes discipline and effort. Why would I want to do that? Let me just jump to the end. You're either this side or this side. You're either with us or against us. Remember the advice from Star Wars. My little girl loves Star Wars. Only a Sith Lord speaks in absolutes. <laughs> Either with us, against us, my side, your side. That's a Sith, Sith Lord. So how do we how do we combat that? Um, I mean, you do a lot of parenting stuff. We can talk about parenting too. I'm sure the audience would love to hear about parenting and being able to watch our kids in distress and coach them through it. But that inherently means that we need to to, to tolerate our own distresses, right? So we can model it for them. Um, what, what's a, what's a practical way to help? increase people's distress tolerance so that we're not at each other's throats? This is such a great question. So here's exactly what to do. Let's say your child comes home and says, I didn't, I got yelled at in class um, uh, because I didn't do my homework. Okay. So first thing we want to say is maybe you want to defend your child and say, well, they shouldn't have yelled at you. Or you want to say um, a teacher was wrong or whatever. What did you step back and go, how'd that feel? I didn't like it. Okay, let's sit with that for a minute. What didn't you like about it? Well, they embarrassed me. Okay, how did they embarrass you? Well, I didn't have my homework done. Okay, so what did you contribute to that? Well, I didn't do my homework. How's that feel? It feels awful. So let's sit in that for a minute. Because if we rush out of this feeling, you're not going to learn from this lesson. But if we sit in this, it's not. I'm not saying you're wrong or bad. I'm not saying you're terrible. But this sucks. This is an awful feeling right now. And it's okay to sit in it. It'll have a beginning, it'll have a middle, it'll have an end. But if it feels bad enough, you won't do it again. And that lesson is powerful. Of course, what do people want to do? They want to just rush to either jump to their side, defend them, or yell at them more. How about just take a moment to sit? The biggest, most powerful lesson I teach in parenting is you are your child's teacher. Every single second, whether you want to be or not, whether you signed up to be a teacher or not. And so the question is, how do I teach you how to handle this uncomfortable emotion? Do I hurry up and get you out of it? Or do I let you sit in it and go, let's sit in it and learn from it? That's powerful. You do that and children start to understand. A, yeah, this sucks. I am going to learn from it. And B, I can handle it when an emotion sucks. I don't like it. So I want to learn to not do the stuff that makes stuff suck. But I can handle it. Are there any tips or techniques for individuals who are the parents in, in this case, or maybe maybe coaches, right, or, or bosses to do that themselves? Because, I, I mean, I'm hearing, like, that I can handle it, which is the antithesis of the extreme language that you mentioned, too, um, in Walking Through Anger. Um, how do we become aware of our self-talk and notice that we're using extreme language that maybe bails us out of those emotions and, and only further 
reinforces that they they can't quote unquote be tolerated and that they must be avoided you know repressed shoved down ignored rationalized what what can we what can we do as individuals i think the greatest daily exercise that we can do is meditate so whether or not meditate whether or not you have spiritual beliefs no spiritual beliefs whatever meditation which 2021 we understand makes neurological shifts in your brain for the better and if you every day, let's say you take five minutes, because five minutes of meditation a day over six weeks has been demonstrated to make physiological changes in your brain. Now, imagine you sit up and you, and you, and you sit still. I say a still body is a still mind. So you practice sitting still. And maybe you've got a quiet environment at home. But then maybe the phone rings or maybe some other noise kicks in or maybe somebody yells and you go. I'm trying to meditate. They should be quiet. They should be quiet. <laughs> Even if it's in your head, think about that versus going, well, this is interesting. There's noise happening. It's not what I want to be happening, but it's not the end of the world and I can handle it. Now imagine you do this day in, day out for ultimately years. You practice every single day having a moment where something occurs or maybe you're itchy and you go, I'm itchy. This is uncomfortable. It's not the end of the world. I could scratch, but I'm going to hold off. And every day you practice, you have a physiological drive to do or a thought to do something. You step back and you go, it's not the end of the world. I can handle it. Five minutes a day doing that, you will see your life transformed because what you'll ha- what will happen. I see it happen all the time. I've been doing now almost four months. I do this meditation with the Department of Corrections over video. And I said in 2020, one of the biggest lessons we learned is that mute is a really complex word. <laughs> so, so a lot of people can't mute their Zoom. And so when they can't mute it, you'd hear noise. And so we're in this dead quiet, 24 state prisons, leadership teams all over the state. And I'm engaged in a five minute meditation and somebody's dog would be barking or somebody would start talking. They obviously weren't meditating. Um, and so people would get so mad. And I would say afterward each week, think about what happened. Because when that happened to me, like my brain goes, um, it's not the end of the world. I can handle it. It's not, and you say it over and over and over to yourself. You are, you are giving yourself an ability to, to increase your ability to handle distress. So what you defined and you're accurate is distress tolerance. So we get better at that because we go, things are happening. It's not the end of the world. Now let's pull this into someone disagrees with your perspective. They shouldn't disagree. No, they disagree. It's not the end of the world. I can handle it. Now you're much more in control to communicate with that person because you're not saying you have to believe me. No, you don't. Yeah, I have a, a question. Do you ever, is it ever okay just to give up on somebody? Like, for example, you consider yourself uh, an emotionally intelligent person. Like you, you, you apply some of the theories that you have in the book, but then you just have certain people that will never take any accountability, never be responsible for anything, always getting screwed over. It's constantly everybody else screwing them over. Like, is, is it ever okay just to say, I guess that's more of like a personal question, right? You have to like figure out what's deep inside right. you. you say, I can't, I can't get through this person. It's never going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can definitely. Uh, so there are people where if it's best to just understand, like I understand that this is a glass. Um, this is always going to be a glass. I guess I'll make it melt it down, make it something else. But if I tried to make this into a pen and I expected it to be a pen, I'd be really disappointed if every day I grab this glass and I try to write with it and it doesn't write. 
at some point I go, you know what, it's a glass. It's okay to accept it as a glass. So the, I, I agree with your philosophy. I might change the word give up and just go, I recognize that's where they are. And that's okay. So I don't need to try to convince them. Now, if it's in a personal life, I'm not going to choose to spend my free time because I get paid to do that with the people who are doing that. I'm not going to choose to spend my free time with people in my personal life who are like that. That's not, that wouldn't be comfortable or enjoyable. And so why would I want to choose to do that now? But if it's work, I'm not going to give like, Hey, if I have to work with, I was at a women's maximum security prison and I was working in what's called the BMU behavioral management unit. These women were struggling with some of the most intense borderline personality disorder in 20 some years I've ever encountered the most self-harm I'd ever seen. And so where they were, it was constant. If I cut myself three times, person over there is going to cut themselves four times. If I cut four times over there's five times and every day, da, 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 da. So I would come in and I'm going to give them my best, but I'm going to let go. Like my job is to give you my best when we're in, when I'm interacting with you. And in that sense, that's the only piece where I wouldn't give up. Like if I'm here with you, I'm going to give you my best. But when I'm over here, I'm not expecting, well, you should get it by now. We've done this every day for six months. You should get it. Never. Because I believe that maybe for you in your path, you need to have it every day for a hundred years and then you'll get it. So I'm not going to expect after six months. So it comes back to that align your expectations with reality. If that, if this cup's a cup, don't expect it to write. That doesn't mean you have to debt. Like you, you suck. No, you're a cup. You have a great, you're good for what you're doing, but I'm not going to grab you and try to keep writing with you because I'm the fool. If I keep trying to think you're the cup, uh, the pen. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes a lot. It makes a lot of sense. I just, you know, it's one of those things I've seen it. um, I've always tend to have been a peacemaker, especially in my family. I've been the one person that is like always kind of talked to everybody and been that tie, but I've, I've watched people give up on people. I've watched people hold the attitude of I've never done anything wrong. I've been screwed up. Like I've literally got them to say that. And I'm like, wow, like that person just said, they've never done anything wrong. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I believe it. I believe it. Yeah. I almost, I almost respect that in some sort of way. Cause it's like, wow, you've created this like universe that, (laughs) that you're a superhero and it's amazing, but it's just, you know, I think it's, I think a lot of people struggle with that. Like I, I think I have in the past, um, struggled with maybe staying in the, in the pocket too long, you know, with certain people and just, you know, and you get burned out with it. It burns you out. Let's, let's keep with the cup. If I cut a hole in this cup and I try to pour water in it, it's never going to fill up. And so I would be silly if I see that hole to just keep pouring water, go, why isn't it filling up? Because it has a hole in it. So listen, I'll give you a story on the perfection person. I was at a counseling this couple early on in my career. And I said to them, I would always do scaling like one to 10 kind of gives you a concrete space to work from. So I said, okay, so one is a terrible part relationship partner and 10 is perfect. And I said, Let, let's see. And you really try to make each end extreme so people can say a middle number and you can help them work on whatever their number is. So I said, this guy was pretty like he was pretty stuck in his way. So I said, give me an example in the history of the world, who would be a 10? And he was uh, a Christian. So I said, uh, so like Jesus, he's like, Jesus, Jesus is a 10. Okay, Jesus, let's set him here. Jesus is a 10. One is just a horrible, horrible human being. Where are you in this relationship? And he goes, I got to say, I'm a 10. 
I was like, oh my goodness, like this is awesome. Like, that's fantastic. Which, why do you say I'm a 12? <laughs> it's like, you wait, so you really see yourself as perfect with nothing to change. Yes. So, what I did was with his wife, I said, so you're in a spot where if you choose to stay in this relationship, he has clearly said, I have no chance of me changing. Like, you guys go to church every week and he puts himself up there with Jesus. That's tough. So if you're going to stay in this relationship, you have to understand what you're in. And so if you, you're either going to keep coming for years and doing the same thing, or you're going to learn about this pretty fast. A cup is a cup is a cup. But here's where non-attachment comes in. Somebody who works at a glass factory could say, yeah, but I could melt this down, turn into something else. Boom. That's why I'm not attached. It's a cup right now. I'm not going to try to write with it, but how do I know they can't make it into it and put some ink in it and make it a pen someday. But right now it's a cup and I would be wise to recognize that it's a cup. Well, and that yeah. speaks to meeting people where they are too, right? So that's a, it's a core tenant of yield theory is if that cup someday down the road isn't a cup anymore, it's it's my job, it's, it's our job to acknowledge that, not to continue seeing them as the cup of yesteryear. And when we talk about rehabilitation, you know, in our field, in prisons and uh, politics, you know, you, you changed parties, you're a flip-flopper. <laughs> like, um, what, what, what is it? what is that we have to do to like move past our previous encounters with somebody to meet them where they are today. Um, even if they've done, you know, unspeakable harm to others, how, how, how do we do that? Well, I think that when we may mess up, we're quick to be like, well, I always say, as you know, people see your actions, not your intentions, but we judge ourselves on our intentions. We judge others on their actions. Right work very fast to be like, well, I didn't mean to do that. So don't judge me on that. But if someone else does it, you did it. And I'm never going to let this go. It's because it comes back to that concrete operational stage of development where it's, I must see you as this in this category. And you kind of just led me right into everybody's Thanksgiving dinner. You come home for Thanksgiving and it doesn't matter where you've come or how you've developed. You've got somebody in your family that wants to see you as the young person who you were especially if they're insecure, they want to see you in the, in your worst moment of your life when you messed up and they want to keep you there because they felt empowered. Maybe then, Oh, you made something of yourself. You did this, but what about when you were this and they want to keep you there because it makes them feel better. It's not easy to constantly challenge your own ego. That's not easy. It's not easy to constantly grow. It's not easy to accept that others have grown. Again, this takes discipline and effort and most people don't really want to put that discipline and effort in. That's okay. It's where they are. I choose to put it in because honestly, it brings me a lot more peace. It brings me peace to know that people change, people can grow and learn. Some people don't. Some people stay stuck in their patterns. That's okay. It is what it is. I believe they have the ability to change, but I'm not going to work harder than they are. Like you, you know, we have a saying, don't ever work harder than your client. If I'm putting in more effort than you are, that's a waste of time. That's silly. I got to have you work, not me. Well, it's a boundary issue too. And you talk about, you know, burning out. That's a real quick way to burn out is failure to acknowledge your own limitations and making the error of omnipotence to, to cite the five errors of communication. Um, I wanted to ask uh, at least two more things. I know we've got, you know, we're running up against time or at least the time allotted. The first is how do we, you've worked with athletes of all levels for a long time. How do you, teach this non-attachment stuff with regard to communication and 
um, circumventing fight or flight and dissolving egos and being at peace and in balance and seeing all sides of the box with competition. Because you need, you need some sort of infusion of passion and, and maybe an ego to, to be a good competitor, right? Yeah, I mean, Lao Tzu says it's great to compete, compete, but recognize what it is. So if I can, I'm a fairly competitive person when I'm doing something, I'm going to compete. I don't define myself by that competition. That's mm. the difference. Mm-hmm. So, so I, what I share with athletes a lot is when you're out there, give everything you are. This is your legacy. This is your experience. Why not give absolutely everything you have? But I'm not going to define myself by the end result. I'm going to... I'm not going to define myself by any one thing, but I am going to do, I'm going to give my best to every single moment. There was a German composer. um, I think Tuscanini, I could be wrong. um, But I remember a story that his son on his 80th birthday was asked, what was your father's greatest accomplishment? He had all these great, uh, did all these uh, wonderful things in composing. And he said, I could never tell you that because whether my father was conducting an orchestra or peeling an orange, he put his best effort into it. So I say, put your best effort into what you're doing, compete, throw yourself out there a hundred percent, but don't be attached to the results and don't be attached to defining yourself by what happens. That's a tough concept. I think. Yeah, it is. Listen, I love that you said that. And let me jump at this because I use samurai. I've been doing this whole program where I say, I'm going to try to help you become a mental samurai. We love the samurai. We respect them. Why? Not because they attacked others, but because they had control of themselves. It's not easy. None of this is easy. It takes effort and discipline. So it's easy to piece of cake to be like, uh, you know, well, uh, that's too, that's too much. No. Uh, yeah, of course it's too much. Again, why do you want to grow and develop to become the best version of yourself? Because no one else is leaving your legacy. You're the only one. And if you want to have excuses, have excuses. There's tons of excuses out there. That's too hard. That's too complex. Well, if I do that, then other people won't. And if I don't do it, if I do it and the people who I'm arguing with don't, I'm just going to look like wishwashy and they're right and I'm wrong. Okay, you have tons of excuses. Don't do it. And maybe it's not worth it for you. But the samurai were unique for a reason. They sought to control themselves. And that's what I teach people. Control yourself, not other people. That's awesome. The, and, and the second thing I wanted to bring up was it um, it popped into my head when you were talking about the the, the women you were working with uh, who are you know, self-harming and whatnot. Um, it's the concept of shame. So when, when I teach this, and I want to clear the air because it sounds like we may be in conflict and we're not. Um, when I teach the neurological function of shame and guilt, shame is uh, simply says you fail to meet somebody's expectations, meaning you cause sadness or pain in another person. And guilt says go make it right, go make atonement right. Um, and you've got a, a different concept of what shame does for people and how to navigate it. And I want to, I want you to explore that for people who may be, you know, experiencing heavy levels of shame. Yeah. To me, what my experience has been is if people live in shame, they act out of shame. What I mean by that is if I feel like I'm no good, like I'm a no good piece of nothing, then why would I not hurt you? Why would I not do whatever I want to do to you? Cause I'm not worth it anyway. And there's the difference between shame and guilt from my perspective is this shame. Guilt is feeling bad about something you've done. That's great. That's healthy. If I hurt you, I ought to feel bad about it. Like I said, don't run from that emotion. Sit in it. It's not comfortable. But now I learn. Now I don't do it again. Shame, on the other hand, isn't feeling bad about what you've done. It's feeling about bad about who you are. That's a big difference. Because if I feel bad about who I am, what do I care if I hurt somebody else? And 
I do work. I, I, it's hard to explain. Like I, I definitely don't. I've been very mindful on shows, no matter what, I don't disclose what I deal with the people I work with, what they do, because I don't want that in people's psyche. I don't, I don't care how curious people are. I work with people who are serial rapists, uh, do ridiculously horrible things to children, infants, babies. When I'm talking about the level of shame I deal with, it's, it's phenomenal. Like it's horrific. But what I see is time. And again, the only way where people get through that is when they can release the shame. Now I do talk about the difference between shame backwards and shame forward. So shame backward is on what you've, what's happened in the past that led to who you are. But if shame, and that to me is not healthy, but shame forward might be visualizing. If I, if I do this, I'm going to feel bad. So I don't do it. That can be very helpful. That's a great tool, actually, especially with, as I mentioned, sex offenders and as they're coming back out and reintegrating into society. If I can visualize, if I go do this, I'm going to feel awful again, then good, do that. But that to me is different than the shame backwards and the shame about the past. And it's not saying don't feel guilty. So people who get that want to just hear whatever they want to hear me say and go, so you're saying they can do whatever and not care. Not at all. You ought to care. And there ought to be extraordinarily strong consequences, stronger than what there are right now. However, it does us no good. In fact, it not only does us no good, and this is what I do in my trainings with officers, you actually endanger future children. And I'm not okay with that. Because if you look at that person who just did something awful and you pile on the shame, you're this, you're that, you're this, you're that. I don't care. I told him. Everyone around you, your peers will be like, yep, you told him. Good. Now, when he's out, who do you think he's going to take it out on? He's not going up to the biggest guy and knocking him out. He's going up to the smallest, weakest child and hurting them. And you get to sit back in your group and be like, man, I told that piece of, okay, great. Now this poor child just got hurt by this person because he couldn't take it out on you. Or we could look at him and help him learn to get through that stuff so that when he gets out, that next child is saved. To me, I have done this for far too long. I see the pattern. I see them when they're here. I see them before they commit the crime, when they commit it. Da, 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 da. And what I have seen is this. When I train officers, especially in the prison, because they are going to be dealing with the people, I do tell them some of the crimes where in the past I, I used to not. So about four, year, four or five years ago, I changed. Maybe three, four years ago, I changed. I never told guys what people were convicted of. Because Jake, for people like you and me, we're the ones who are the sin eaters that have to hear that. That's our role. We chose that role. But for the officers, they don't need to get into that stuff. However, about three or four years ago, I changed it. And I started telling people. And the reason why I did, only officers, I don't do it on shows and all that stuff, but on officers. The reason why is this. Because if you see the chain of events, how one thing leads to another, now all of a sudden you realize you're not guilt-free if you treat somebody like scum and then just step back and act like you didn't do anything. No, you contributed to that. To a person who, if this, if they're the cup, you can't pretend like, well, they should have been a pen. No, they're a cup. And a cup is going to keep being a cup. If the person is someone who builds on shame and then takes it out on a child, if they're, and you could be like, well, they shouldn't be around. Okay, great. They shouldn't be around kids again. That's not the world we live in. It's not the world we live in. I think it's, you know, you see, we see, we live in a world right now where they can edit and censor things if people say something, yet there's still access to child pornography. How is that not eliminated? It's, it's infu- so it's infuriating 
but the reality is people are getting out. People are going to hurt them again. So you got to be mindful how you treat somebody because you're not doing anything good. It's only ego to be like, I told them. What's that? that doesn't mean anything. That just sounds silly. I told them, oh, good for you. You actually contributed to violence. So once you realize that, oh, it's not just in the background, it's in your foreground. So to me, sometimes when I'm working with them, I almost see the next child down the road. And I go, only way to keep this little child safe is to give this person my best. Now, the truth is, many people will make changes, many people won't. But I'm certainly going to go to bed at night knowing I gave everybody my best, not been like, you're scum, whatever. It's a lot, huh? It's heavy stuff. No, it, it, it really resonates with me. And I draw on a couple of examples in my life. I remember when I was going through my first divorce or my only divorce that I've ever had, um, I, you know, she had another guy, you know, and, and this guy, we just, we never even talked, but we were just automatically enemies. Right. I mean, he, he had, we're for, with the, the crazy part about this is we're like really good friends now. He comes to stays in my house. But, um, you know, I remember at one point where, I was discussing with my friend this, the way that the situation was so screwed up that I had. And he, and he said, you, you don't communicate with the man that's around your children. And I, I said, no. And he goes, that would be unacceptable to me. And I said, well, like, I'm okay. I'm, you have me. I'm intrigued. He's like, man, I don't care. He's like, there's nobody's going to sit around my kids that I don't have a relationship with, especially in that capacity. And it really made me be like, you got to be mature, Mike, like regardless, throw it out there. If the guy doesn't want to do this and he doesn't want, you know what I mean? But like, I have to mentally say for my children's sake, because it becomes about a parenting plan after you get done with the emotional and the fighting. Right. I said, I have to go out and extend this olive branch that I never would have. Right. And, and when I did that, it, it, it took a while, but I tell that to everybody. Now I pass that knowledge on to everybody. Like, no, that wouldn't be acceptable to me. Take them to dinner, take them to lunch, take her to dinner, take her to lunch, do something, right? Make that effort. Um, and, and so like a lot of what you're saying really hits home. It reminds me of that. I do have one question though, because I think this is one, um, you're not going to be able to answer this, but we, we kind of touched on it before when we were talking as we we're setting up. I, I go to a lot of functions and events and I, I'll sit on panels. And one of the questions that we get in the gun community, particularly because um we have made the liberal side of things, the complete enemy, right? Like when, when people think of gun control, uh, they say like, Oh, it's the, the, the gun grabbing liberals, even though we have organizations like the liberal gun club and liberal gun owners that totally fight for second amendment rights. But this question comes up all the time. How do you talk to a, a, a liberal who hates guns and how do you convince them? And, you know, I have my thoughts and theories on it. And I try to, you know, I, I don't want to say like, hey, you know, just sit down. It, it seems so easy, like sit down and talk to them. But really that it, that it, it is. But is there a real answer for that? Or what would you say if that question was posed to you? Yeah, there is. I mean, listen, guilt theory, like I said, I broke it down. I, I've spent my whole life trying to make concepts really simple for people. And the reality is yield theory boils down to three core actions that you would do if you sat across from somebody who had such a vastly different perspective. And that is listen, validate, and explore options. So you're genuinely going, listen, if somebody's saying guns are bad, okay, let me, tell me why. Because I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid. Then tell me that. Like your side of the box is valuable. What are you seeing? Something led to something in your life for you to have such a strong opinion. Teach me about it. 
then you openly listen, not listen, wait till they're done talking and then get your point in, but truly validate that. Like, my gosh, that must've been scary. Let's say you grew up in a house, your father beat you with a gun. I don't know, whatever, but whatever it is, like, let me listen because there's a reason why you feel so passionately. Now, once they feel heard, and this is the key, if they genuinely feel heard, there's another thing, oh, I did it, but they didn't, they didn't listen. No, you can tell if they feel heard because once someone feels heard, they don't have to keep going. They're like, okay, I got it out. Boom. <sighs> there's a physiological response. Now you go, I see, and I love this. Here's what I've kind of been seeing. And now it's, now I'm sharing my side. Now we're both looking at it. And that really is the answer. The problem is, as I say, I, I was doing this presentation years ago and about 500 mental health specialists. And at the break, a woman came up to me dressed to the nines as condescending as possible. She looked at me and she goes, that's your big theory, three things. And I said, yeah, but if you think about it, all Bruce Lee ever did was move, block, and hit. He did pretty well for himself. And so, yeah, it is just three. Just because you know the words move, block, and hit doesn't mean you can move, block, and hit like Bruce Lee. It is simple. He moved, he blocked, he hit. Now, listen, validate, explore options. But it's how you do it. And if you do it with the, I listen, so you should listen to what I have to say. You're off. You're, you're doing it wrong. If you listen as if they're on the other side of the box and you genuinely want to know what they're saying, now that changes everything. And you validate, like you really are inside their shoes. Like yield theory is about visualizing yourself behind their eyes. So like you're them arguing with you. And you really validate from that perspective. Now they get it out. They feel heard. Now you can say, I appreciate that. Here's the perspective I'm seeing. This is what I'm seeing. And then they're more likely to be receptive to what you have to say. But there is one final overwhelming answer I have for you that I taught to my daughter that helped her become the top of her debate class. I said, I promise you this, when you don't want to win the debate, everything will change. She said, daddy, she came home from her final debate in debate class. She said, uh, daddy, she said, I can't even tell you. She said, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. She said, the kids are like, don't debate Kaya. And she said, I went in there with that perspective. I didn't have to win. I didn't have to be right. I was simply sharing the perspective, my side of the box. And she said, it was incredible. They had nothing left to say. And I was like, that's it. Because it's not about winning. It's not, you don't win the debate. Even if you convince 30 people in a room, now they switch to your perspective. There's over 7 billion people on the planet. You, you think I convinced everybody. No, you didn't. There's over 7 billion people. That's all ego. Everybody I know. How many people do you know? <laughs> and my whole audience. I, well, it's like there's so many more people out there. So I would say don't try to convince them because that's the air of omnipotence. I'm not there to convince you. I'm here to express my side. I can tell you this. There are certain things that we can do that make people more receptive to what we're about to say and certain things that shut people down. And that's neurological. That's neurological. If we had a brain scan and you start going, you need to do this. Now their fight or flight kicks in. They're literally in their limbic system. And if you want them to get in their frontal cortex, you got to circumvent the limbic system. That's why listen, validate, explore option is as solid as move, block, and hit. That is the answer. It just takes effort and discipline to do it in the best way. It, I'm glad you brought that up about the neurological function because sometimes it comes off as like a parlor trick, right? Like we're, uh, we're, you know, some dude behind the curtain pulling levers, uh, while the, the, the patient or the client or the recipient of our information is just, um, you know, wondering what happened. And if we really want to empower people to, to know, to do this well, it, it's worth explaining what you just explained, which is the, the valid, they have to be in that order. Listen first, then validate, 
then explore options. Because if you skip over validate, you don't drain the limbic system and they're still stuck in that fight or flight. And literally the wrong part of the brain is operating. You can't speak to the frontal cortex because that's the explore options part. And if you just start throwing options at people and they're limbically activated, they're not going to receive the information anyway. So this isn't this isn't some parlor trick. It's not some good idea. I mean, it's neurologically, empirically founded. It's like walking up to a house with your key and shoving the key in the side of your house. And you're going, I don't understand why it's not working. I'm shoving it in the house. Well, the keyhole's over there. Like you can scream and shove your key in the side of your bricks, but it's not going to do anything. You got to put the key in the keyhole. That's what happens with this. You have to put be accurate with what you're doing. And so, yeah, I really, I really believe that. I really enjoy being on this with you guys. I feel like I could talk to you guys all day. Yeah. Um, yeah. Likewise, man. Likewise. I really appreciate it. I love what you're doing. I think this is phenomenal. I think it's so incredible. Two powerful, strong men taking the time to teach people to step back and listen. Um, I think it's amazing what you're doing because that really is by, and by leading by example, because people are out there listening right now and they're going, okay, I can see that. What I, my final advice for anybody out there is trying to change someone's opinion. Remember this, the moment you feel antsy, like, okay, I'm going to get them here. Stop. You're off base. You're trying to shove the key in the side of the house. Put the key in the keyhole. Listen you know, I, I should start traveling with your book. <laughs> like, I appreciate hey, that. How do you change the liberal's mind? Um, I'd like to uh, defer to Christian Conti's walking through anger. <laughs> you can get this on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate that. So I t- toss them out. I got to send you some bookmarks and you pass them out. Yeah, no, honestly, I, I really do. I, I, I actually read it twice. Um, I, I circled back uh, a while just because, you know, we bring you up so much. Um, I, I definitely think that everyone should check it out. I, I mean, I'm not just saying that. Um, I wouldn't say that there are times we've had people on here before where I didn't read their book, <laughs> you know, uh, but I do, I do really enjoy this. And I think it's something that people, you know, I always call this like emotional intelligence. Like people say I'm street smart or I'm um, book smart or this, you know, I, well be emotionally smart too. There's, there's that. Um, and I think it's an important thing for everybody. I mean, I just had a conversation with my daughter before the show started about, you know, uh, her, her mother was screaming about something and we were kind of going talking. I said, uh, you, you know, her, like you, you act surprised. We, we, we know who she is, you know, what's going to make her explode. So you got to be smarter, you know, the way you phrase stuff, the way you talk to her, um, you know, it, who knows what, what will happen, but you know, at least she's taking in the information. So I, I do love your book. I'm a huge fan. Um, Thank you. Yeah. You actually let me, have a- let me say that I want to add this piece as you're saying that because this is something that comes up. People say, I shouldn't have to do that. And 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 Jake knows this, probably teaches this on here, but there's a difference between what I call the cartoon world and the real world. That cartoon world's a world of shoulds. I shouldn't have to do this. Well, that's great. That's your cartoon world. Because the real world is if you want to and you know how someone is, this cup's a cup. So I know how to approach it. So what you're teaching is great because it's like if you know what to expect. Now you can approach that in the way that's most effective. Mike. Yeah. One, one final thing there, there, there is something that's really cool. When I first read your, read your book, this was a quote that I loved. It was through it all, be mindful about the role you play in every interaction, including what is and isn't in your control. The less attached you are to needing others to see what you see or having things go a certain way, the more you will genuinely help, others help themselves to be free. This dope quote. Thank I, you. I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I, mean, one, I was like, that's a good line. I remember writing that. <laughs> 
You don't you don't get off that easy though. Mike has to ask it this uh, same question of every guest. Uh, yes, uh, he he did kind of hit on some things that he does. Uh, but how, how do you, especially in the environment you work in, and and with all the stress, being a father, uh, being a husband, uh, how do you tend to your mental health? Um, you know what? I definitely practice what I preach. I'm mindful of my self talk. I meditate every day. I have a beautiful wife and daughter where we have a, a tremendous connection. We're very close. Uh, my wife is my Zen rock. She challenges me. Um, she lives Zen. She is a living embodiment of Zen. Um, and we are, like I said, character never takes a time out. So we're always on. So I'm constantly practicing that self-talk and being mindful of my dialogue and conscious of our dialogue in our house. Because if you speak a certain way in front of your children and then you wonder why they're speaking a certain way, like I always say, we never, never get mad at her. She says something that we say because we taught it to her. So I take care of myself and I, do, I lift. I, I, I like to exercise. Um, I find that if I don't work out, my stress levels increase. So I try to stay consistent. I'm going to hit a workout here in a little bit. Um, and then uh, that's ba- the, the primary thing. Meditation, my spiritual beliefs, we, we participate in that every single day. It's a part of our daily life um, and working out body, mind and spirit. My man, this is that's that's the formula, man. This is good. Uh, another another great podcast. Crushed it, Michael. We just keep yeah. getting good guests. I love it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Dr. Christian Conti, the book is Walking Through Anger, available on Amazon. Uh, you got a bunch of other books too. Um, Zen Parents and Child is another great one. And um, uh, Life Lessons, you can you can find those all over the place. Go to his website, drchristianconti.com. Uh, thanks to Arms Corps for continuing to sponsor the podcast. Thank you to you, beautiful listening audience, for continuing to make this possible by sharing this around and uh, being a blessing to everybody in our lives. And uh, with that, we thank the Zephyr Wellness family, the Walk to Talk America family, and the Conti family for allowing you to carve out some time on this day. And uh, we wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye. I said, I promise you this. When you don't want to win the debate, everything will change.